We're going to be uh, starting the second book of Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, and really doing uh, the whole chapter. And you know, I kind of schedule out these sermons, not knowing uh, exactly how each sermon is going to go and, and how we're going to do the text. And I maybe got a little aggressive. And the next three weeks, each are uh, the entire chapter of Second Thessalonians. And especially next week, uh, I'm going to try my best. Uh, but today. And really, you know, we're going to stay kind of uh, surface level on this uh, while getting into some deeper truths. Uh, but we're going to read all of the chapter today. And, and just to give you some context of what we're reading, uh, you know, all of First Thessalonians, if you could boil it down to is Paul and his team had to quickly leave this young church. They're only there for a few weeks. And then the persecution kind of stayed in this church. And there's this question of how is this church doing and after this visit from Timothy, he reports back to Paul that the church is actually doing tremendously well and is thriving, is healthy, even in the midst of all these hardships. And so that's what a lot of the first letter was, is, hey, you're doing well, keep going well. And there's a lot of context of, of, of viewing all of these hardships in the context of Jesus is going to come back, and, and there is this great and hopeful future for you that you can rest in, even in the midst of these hardships. And now the second letter happens just a few months after the first. It's actually very quick. And we see a lot of these themes continue. And in this first chapter, we see uh, that, that same kind of di dialogue continuing. And now there's more focus placed on the second coming of Christ, of what that's actually going to look like and why Jesus is coming back and what this means for the church. But as we read this today, there's going to be some naturally tough questions that arise out of this text as you think about it. But I, I really titled it, God Knows Best, because that's how I, I read all of this, is, is it's not so much of a question mark of what we're reading. God is telling us how it's going to happen. And we as Christians may ask the questions, but ultimately we need to rest in his knowledge and his truth and know that this is how God has designed things to be. And you want to make sure that you're on the right side of what he is describing. So as we read this today, again, know there's going to be a lot of tough questions, really three overarching questions and ideas we're going to go through. But knowing all of it, this is God's word. This is God's truth, and God knows best. So let's read this together, starting in verse 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. On the day he comes to be glorified 
and his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there's a lot to go through today, but I, I want to just break this down really in three overarching concepts, and maybe some of the tough questions we may ask as questions. And, and what we see in the first few verses is there's this idea that life just is not easy for this church, but really for all Christians. There's no guarantee of an easy or a comfortable life that we all go through different kinds of trials and hardships. But God has a plan for that. God has a purpose for every bit of suffering and pain you may experience in this life, and it goes well beyond what we can comprehend, that there's a divine purpose for that. And this church which is going through these these hardships, these persecutions, uh, were not abandoning the faith. In fact, they were growing in, in the faith. And, and what we see first is this spiritual growth through hardships. It's this concept you see in, in the first uh, three or four verses of this book, but really a concept we see all throughout the scriptures, that when we grow in our faith, it's, it's typically when things are tough. And what we'd like is an easy life, but that's not God's plan. It's hard to trust God in that. And we know that this church was healthy, it was growing, it was thriving, and it wasn't because things were downhill for them. In fact, they're, they're seeing uh, persecutions and trials of many kinds. And what we know is that a healthy church that has this potential for maximum impact in the kingdom it's typically going to come through some kind of battle. And Satan wants to throw everything in the kitchen sink at a church that's doing well. And, and even the city was in a very strategic place. It was a port city. There's major highways that were going through it. And so there's thousands of visitors that would come every single day. It was an attractive place to live. And so not only did they have impact uh, that was uh, possible in the city, but through all of the Roman Empire... And so we see this thriving church with a whole list of hardships that are being thrown at it. And Satan is working overtime to really discourage and distract and demotivate this church, primarily through the vehicle of persecution. But we see there's really three uh, takeaways here, that they're growing in faith, that they're increasing in love, and that they're enduring through all of this with hope. And there we see kind of this trifecta of Christian virtues again, the faith, the love, and the hope. All throughout Paul's epistles, you see those combined faith, love, and hope. And these are really the hallmarks of an authentic Christian, that their faith here was growing more and more. And what this really means literally is that their faith was flourishing, and this directly is translated as a, a healthy and a prolific growth. So that means it's not really this, this marginal growth, but it's really a miraculous growth in their faith. 
And the concept of faith, as we often think of it, is something that we just try really hard to do. I'm just going to try really hard to believe in this. We think of it as this fleshly measure. If I can just keep having more faith that, that God will be glorified. But, but really we understand in this context that faith is actually a gift from God. God gives us faith. And you can pray for your faith to be strengthened and deepened through your trials. And it's really this continuous gift that God gives you And the way that this church was growing in their faith through these persecutions shows this wasn't their work. This this is God's work in them. And that this was for real. This was well beyond human capacity. And he starts with this saying, it's right for us to thank God for this faith. He's not thanking this church for their faith. He's thanking God for the faith that he's given them that's carried through these things and continues to grow. And this is really important because he's taking a moment to encourage this young church going through these difficulties. And that's something we can do for one another. When you see someone growing in their faith, the evidence of faith is is really growing in them. Take a moment to encourage them. We live in a day and an age where it is becoming less and less culturally popular to be a Christian. I think especially of our youth, what they're growing up in now is, is drastically different than maybe what uh, maybe some of the, the older people grew up in, in their schools. Certainly, it's, it's never been easy, but it is way less easy now to be a Christian. There's tons of pressures. And so when you see the evidence of faith growing in people, especially our young believers, especially the kids we see here, this is an opportunity we have to really encourage them. This encouragement puts wind in the sails of their faith, that they continue to grow more and more. We also see there's this increasing love for one another. Again, this is not the, the, the love that we muster up ourselves. This is kind of the, the otherworldly love that's only possible through faith. This is the word agape, again, this sacrificial, service-oriented love. That, that It's not just a sentiment of I, I, I feel love for you, but I show love for you. This love is only possible through faith, and so their faith is growing, their love is increasing. What's kind of cool about this verse is this is exactly what he prayed for them months prior in the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 3, verse 12, that he prayed that God would increase their love for one another. And now it's this moment where, like, the prayer worked. Your love is increasing for one another. And the healthy churches are really growing in this love. In verse 4, I'll read that again. That among God's churches we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials that you are enduring. This is really talking about the concept of hope, even though the word hope isn't listed here. The only way to persevere through these kinds of things is with this unfailing, confident hope in God that he has the future in his hands. And so no matter what we're facing now, it won't affect the future we have in him. Their faith was growing, their love was growing, And now their hope is growing. And it's become for them this this anchor in the storms of life that nothing can shake them. This church exhibited great hope and did not abandon their faith in these trials. And so, as he says, we should boast about you among all God's churches. And what this really means is you should be counted as an example to all the other churches. And I think about that for our church, for our American church, if we really hit these kinds of persecutions, would we see this spiritual growth even through that? 
I pray so. I pray so, and that's why we have to look at an example like this and say, I want to be like that. They're an example. And so really the application we, we get from this is that a healthy church is not one that's free of trials and difficulties, but ultimately it's one that's strengthened through these trials and difficulties. And this is hard to understand, especially in our culture. You know, our, our logic would tell us that if you are doing things well, if you are faithful to God, and, and you're doing and saying and believing all the right things, that your life should be easier. But biblically, the example over and over again is that may not be the case. And verse 5 is, is somewhat difficult to understand, that all this, and he's talking about is first, the trials that they're facing, and second, their response to it, that they're growing through these trials. All this is the evidence that God's judgment, it's talking about his future judgment, is correct. It's really hard to understand, especially if you're viewing faith through the lens that I just spoke about. That everything should be easier as a Christian, but now we're saying these trials and your growth through them is evidence that God's judgment is correct. I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this this morning because I think it's really important for us to understand. Now, if you believe that if you do good, you will always receive good, and if you do bad, you will always receive bad. Uh, that's not a biblical concept. That's probably closer to what we would know as karma, kind of an Eastern spiritual thing. And in this life, there's not always a, a direct relation between your faith and then the, the quality or the comfort of your life here. Certainly in this case, this church was very faithful, yet the persecutions increased along with their faith. The man writing this letter was incredibly faithful to God and had spent his, his whole life building churches and, and writing much of the Bible we have, and yet he was in and out of jail and persecutions and hardships and ultimately died because of his faith. And probably the most pervasive and dangerous teaching in our culture is what we know as the prosperity gospel. And I've talked about it many times. And I keep bringing it up because it keeps getting thrown at people. The people it affects is not really the non-Christians, but the Christians. And you get this idea that if you just have enough faith in God, no harm will ever befall you. You'll be spared from every bit of inconvenience and insecurity in this life. And if we're honest, we all wish this were true. I would love for that to be true. The problem is it's just not the biblical teaching and not the biblical example. And so if you subscribe to that false teaching, you're always going to be confused when the hard things happen in life. And you ask yourself, either what, first, what's wrong with me and my faith? Am I not believing hard enough? Am I not doing enough? Or, or second, what's wrong with God? Why isn't he holding up to his end of the bargain here? And so what we see here is that there is a divine purpose of hardships and trials and suffering in the Christian life that is hard for us to understand in the here and now. That hardships can really do uh, ultimately, one of two things for a professing Christian. It can lead to expose kind of a, a faulty or in, uh, a faith that's not true, so an abandonment of the faith, or it can lead them to grow deeper in the faith and to be strengthened in their relationship with God. We see this, uh, we talked about a couple weeks ago in the parable of the soils that Jesus gave. He talked about this different response you can have to the Word of God or to the Gospel you can abandon it altogether, or there's a couple of kind of false starts 
where it looks real, but it's, it's really not. And the fourth example is what we really all want to be in, where it's, it's true that God's Word takes root, and it survives, and it and multiplies in you. That's an authentic faith. But one of them he talked about was the rocky soil. Remember what happens there when the sun comes out in this parable, and that seed that's growing in the rocky soil, what does the sun do to that, that seed, that plant? It withers away. And Jesus goes on to explain, this represents those who profess a faith in Christ, but their faith was never really rooted in anything. And that when the trouble and persecution comes uh, because of their faith in the gospel, that they quickly fall away. And this is where we start to see the role of hardships and suffering in a person's life and how we can interpret the verse that all of this is evidence that God's judgment is correct. That these are also called trials or tests. Now, when you place faith in God, there may be hard things that come, but in 1 Peter 1, it says that we can rejoice even though we've been grieved by trials because it tests the genuineness of your faith, that you may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he kind of compares it to gold being tested in fire. That when you take something precious like gold out of the earth, you never really get pure gold. It's always mixed with iron or copper or calcium or many different things, the way that you make pure gold is to put it through intense heat or stress to the point that it melts. And then, and then all the good stuff is separated from all of the bad stuff, and now you can extract the pure stuff. We understand is that's kind of how our faith works. That's how God uses trial in our lives. And 2 Corinthians 12 is the same idea, that we can boast in our weaknesses. That's why we can delight in insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties, because when we are weak, then we are strong. The difficult parts of your life, these hardships, really expose all of your weaknesses. So you can be strengthened through this. This is really talking about this ongoing process of sanctification. And that's what we read here, is that these trials, these, these persecutions, are completely meaningful for them, because they've stood the test, their, their faith has grown, and now they can have confidence at the end when God judges the world that it is correct. There's no question mark here. It's, it's really the evidence that God is working in their life. To make it clear, trials are not what make us worthy for the kingdom of God. So you shouldn't go out and, and look for things to suffer through to prove yourself to God, but it says that we are counted worthy. We are counted worthy through the trials that come. And if your faith survives and grows through all the hard things, it's kind of proof that you are, in fact, God's. And that your faith has grown. The point here is that difficulties are really hard to understand. It's something we have to trust God in. But it's part of God's plan for all Christians to, to go through these tests and these difficulties. And it's evidence in the end that if you make it through that and you grow, that God's judgment is correct, that there's a security in him. Spiritual growth through hardships, something we've got to trust God in. And if we want to get stronger physically, there isn't a quick cure for that. It's typically going to come through some kind of pain, right? If you want to be stronger as a Christian, I think it, it's ultimately made in the same way. We all have different lots of, of blessings and hardships in this life, but every single one of them is meaningful, meaningful for the Christian. And so now we go into the second overarching part, as uh, this, this future for believers. 
okay? That, that we know that no matter how hard this life is, it's temporary. And it's difficult when you're in the midst of the troubles to see the big picture. But, but in the middle portion of this chapter, it's very clearly talking about when Jesus returns, that there'll be this final judgment or final accounting that for the believers, there's good news. For the unbelievers or the evil, there's really bad news. And we see it kind of in this good news, bad news, good news sandwich. Now we're going to look at just the good news first. And we see very clearly again what we're talking about in, in the second half of verse 7, that this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. When Jesus returns, everything's going to be made right. And this is really why Jesus is coming back, to issue this final judgment, to extinguish all kind of evil, and to really glorify and raise up the believers who oftentimes have been suffering through so much. And this is especially important. uh, These kinds of verses are especially important for Christians who are suffering through really difficult times. There's this great comfort and perspective. The problem is that we are impatient people by nature. We don't like to wait. And it's hard to view our temporary and earthly sufferings in the context of this eternal and everlasting glory because the natural question is how much longer is it going to be? And for Mandy and I, we, we entered a new chapter of our parenthood on our Christmas trip up to her parents. They're about five hours away. Ten minutes into the car ride, Mason had one question for us, our four-year-old. Are we there yet? And oh boy, this is going to be a while now, and we try to explain the timing of that. But, but this is just the first in many examples in our lives when you're sitting in the DMV line, how much longer? You have that back-ordered purchase, and they keep saying two more weeks from now, every two weeks, you know? Or maybe you're in the, the middle of winter now, as I talked about, how much longer? All right, three weeks until spring, we're almost there. But the same is true, especially true for these believers going through the hard things. How much longer do we have to sit through this? And it's a question that was echoed in the Old Testament by, by David when he was being chased down by Saul in Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, are you going to forget me? How long is this going to last? The, the prophet Habakkuk, how long will these injustices happen among your people? But we have this promise here to hold on to that God knows best, and in his timing, it will be made right because God is just. He sees all of this stuff. He knows what's happening. He knows what's right. And our concept of justice is always going to be flawed. Justice is kind of like a big uh, word right now, social justice, and a lot of people talk about justice. And as a Christian, it's, it's good to love justice, but it's also good to understand justice. That Our justice as humans will always be flawed and incomplete. We're going to come at it with with personal bias. We're we're going to see things through uh, a flawed system, and we'll never really be able to issue true justice as people. And and usually our mindset is, I want them to repay for all the evil they did and and have justice for those things while all all the sin and I stuff, I, I really want mercy for that. 
There's a combination of justice and mercy that's only possible with God. And as a, as a, a believer of Jesus, you should love justice, but you should also love mercy. Because that's how you become a Christian. Only God's justice will be perfect. When you, when you ask the questions, does God see and does God care, the answer is yes. And it will be made right that we see here that there will be this relief from your enemies, that he will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. Those who oppose you often appear to have this upper hand, but, but God is the one who has the final word. That you'll see this rest and relief from your troubles. And the, the word relief here really is probably better translated as rest, but it's an interesting word in the Greek. And really what it means is that there is a complete end to stress and trouble. So it's not this momentary rest, but this final rest or relief. It's this idea of a stress-free life. That's what we all want, right? Sounds kind of heavenly. That's the point. That one day that heaven will offer, offer us this, this life completely free of stress and troubles that our ultimate rest will be in heaven. And this isn't to say that God doesn't give you rest now in this life, because he certainly does. The difference is that now we receive a rest in or through our troubles. But one day we have the promise that we'll have a rest from our troubles. There will be no more problems. We don't have a lot of time today to get into it, but in verse 10 we really see these rewards for our faith that will be glorified... God will be glorified in his holy people and be marveled at. And this, this speaks to the future that when Jesus comes back for this final judgment, that we get to come with him, that we won't be judged, but we will come back with him for this final claiming of the victory. And the idea is that we will be glorified or we will be made perfect in him. And it's really cool to read that in verse 10, that, that his glory will be radiated or reflected in all of us, that he comes back with his church for this final moment. We'll be completely on the other side of this judgment. And by the way, that's the only way to survive this final judgment of God is, is to avoid it altogether, to be counted righteous through Christ and to come back with him for this judgment. When he comes back, we get to come back with him. And verse 11 and 12 are also really important. We talk about the good news. Is that until he comes back, we get to serve him. And the old saying is, it's, it's no sense in being so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. Right? We have a job here for as long as we're here. And this is our job security as Christians until he comes back. And while we're still here, there's work to be done. And so Paul kind of prays for three things in verses 11 and 12, that we may be worthy of our calling, right? That, that through every circumstance and suffering, we are shaped in that, and ultimately that we don't give up on what God has called us to do. That by his power, he may bring to fruition every desire and goodness and every deed prompted by faith. And basically, this means that the work that God has started in you, he's praying that this would continue. This, again, this is that, that, that process of sanctification. And that Jesus may be glorified in you, and you and him. And that's really the whole purpose of a healthy church is that God is glorified in his people. That's such a great thought to think. 
that God is glorified by the work of the church for him, and the church is glorified by the work of Jesus in them. That's the hopeful future we all face, and so we have to know that no matter how hard it is now, God knows best, and he has the future in our hands. And the application I want you to take away from this is that if, if you are a Christian, if you're in Christ, you have this assurance, despite any circumstance, that the future will be filled with everlasting peace, rest, and reward. No matter what you're going through, you keep going with this hope and confidence in God that when Jesus returns, we will experience this total rest from our troubles. But until then, our comfort is that he will give us rest in and through our troubles. God is just and he will make all things right. This assurance is only found in Jesus. And if you are a Christian, you know that assurance, you can live with that assurance. But Jesus told us that there would be many who would not find this assurance in him. There would be many who would reject him. That this this gate that leads towards everlasting life is, is narrow, it only goes through Jesus. But the path that leads towards destruction is broad, and many feet travel it. And this is the, the last kind of hard part to stomach, is, is verses 8 and 9. Something you have to be able to understand as a Christian. is that there's a fearful future for those who don't believe in him. I'm going to read 8 and 9 again here. That he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now, this is the bad news. And it's bad news for many people around the world. And we have this natural tendency as people to always kind of consider ourselves innocent, right? We, we exonerate ourselves from wrongdoing in, in many different ways. And, and humans just have a really hard time admitting guilt, even when they're very obviously guilty, you know, like the kid with chocolate over their face. And were you in the chocolate? No, you know, chocolate over their hands. It doesn't get any better as you get older. We find ways to justify what we do and to exonerate ourselves from any kind of guilt. And it's like the story of the governor who visits a state penitentiary. And he wants to get the story of all of those who are, are there. And, and the first person he talked to said, tell me your story, why you're here. That I am innocent as a corrupt judge who was bribed to convict me. And the next person said, I'm innocent. I was framed. The next person says, I'm innocent. I was falsely accused by mistaken identity. And, and prisoner after prisoner hears all of the stories of why they're innocent and why they shouldn't be there. Until he finally came to the last prisoner. And you're shocked to hear from this one, say, I am guilty. I'm here because I deserve this just punishment. I'm a thief, and I'm a criminal. I did what I knew was wrong, and I deserve every bit of my punishment. The governor says to the warden, how have you allowed this one wicked criminal to be housed with all of these innocent men? We live in a world that rewards you for never admitting your guilt. But the reality is for the Christian, it's the one who is like the last prisoner. 
The only way to freedom and exoneration from what you truly deserve is admitting your guilt. The reality is that all people have sinned, and the penalty of that sin is death, eternal death. It's what a just God would bring to someone who has sinned against him. And the Christian is one that says, I'm guilty. I deserve this. I'm a sinner. But I believe that Jesus paid this price and took the penalty for me. And that's how you're counted worthy of the kingdom. But those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus are ones who say, I am innocent and I don't need help. This is what we call self-justification. And it can come in many different forms, usually by minimizing your sin or, or claiming that it never happened or just, just disobeying God altogether with no remorse. The problem is that self-justification won't work at the final judgment. You can come up with whatever defense you want before God, and any claim you make of being innocent won't work. The only thing that will work is being justified through Christ. And that is the gospel, really, that, that you sinned, that you deserve this punishment, that Jesus came to take the punishment for you and conquered that death to give you life and, and to award you his righteousness before the Father that you could be considered innocent. And here we see the future of those who do not obey that gospel. And it's not looking good. Words like punishment. It speaks of this vengeance for this rightful and complete repayment of what they've done. Destruction. One commentator said this means the loss of all things that give worth to existence. You're destroyed in a way where everything good is stripped away from you. And that there's this separation or being shut out from the presence of the Lord. Complete severance from God. And if you haven't picked up on this yet, what we're talking about here is hell. It's a really tough subject to, to talk about, hell. And God doesn't delight in this, but we understand that this is, this is final. And there's no more chances once you're at this judgment. Now, if you watch any kind of sports or football, you know this moment where there's this last-ditch effort. Maybe it's the last play of the game, just seconds left. Your team is going down the field, and they, they do the lateral, and they go up the sideline. They're so close to getting this game-winning score, and they're tackled just short of the goal line. If you're a Vikings fan, you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> and the first thing you do is scan the field for flags. Is there any hope here? Was there, was there a penalty on the play? Nothing. Can the church, can coach throw the challenge flag? Is there one more chance here? And it's definitive. You're short. And then you get that sinking feeling of there are no more chances. It's done. The time is out. And we lost. And on a much more serious level, that's, that's what these unbelievers face. Is there's a moment they realize they were wrong. It's too late. And this judgment is completely final. This kind of stuff is not easy to talk about. It should delight no one to think about, even for your worst enemies to think about hell. It's a terrible, terrible place. And the application that I want to end with is you don't want to be on the wrong side of God's judgment. This is something that is going to happen. Your only assurance is in Jesus. And, and some people will think, 
maybe we could just say hell doesn't exist. And that's kind of a growing trend even in the church today to say, you know, hell is just not a thing and everyone just goes to heaven. Well, to believe that is, is just to be completely ignorant of what the Bible says. Jesus himself spoke about hell many times and he described it as a place of eternal fire, eternal punishment, eternal darkness, eternal pain. And it's spoken of many times through the Old Testament and the New Testament. So hell definitely exists, but other people try to soften hell a little bit and, and they'll say, you know, when I go to hell, I'll just have a party in hell. They kind of say it's going to be this place where it's just maybe a slap on the wrist and Hell is a terrible, terrible place. And of all the descriptions, nothing should terrify you more than what we read here in the second half of verse 9. There's this complete separation from God forever. The author of, of life and goodness and love and all things that make life worth living, you'd be separated from him forever. And there's this moment to realize, I was super wrong. And maybe now I want that. It's too late This is the kind of stuff that shouldn't keep you up at night as a believer, right? You should have assurance in Jesus. It should keep you up at night that people, other people don't have this assurance. When it talks about being busy while God is away, while Jesus is away, right, that we're supposed to stay active, this is the kind of stuff that we stay active with. So the first question we think about this is, is what about you? Maybe that's a question some of you today haven't even wrestled through. But if you're secure, then the next question is, what about others? Did you know that 150,000 people die every day around the world? Less than 5% of them would call themselves a Christian or have security in Christ. It's 4.5 million people a month that die that have no testimony of security in Christ. That should trouble the church. And that's why we exist as a church that's why we say we are a church that exists to connect with God and, and connect with others and connect others with God. It's not just a trendy statement. We're talking about eternity for people, heaven and hell. That's why we're a church focused on missions. That We're here to reach the lost, to give them the assurance of heaven that we have. The local, for global believers, every soul has to work through this idea. What is your eternal security. And if you have none, that's where the church comes into play. It's the stuff that should keep you going and motivated as a believer is that for many people, this is the future they face. Now, this text we read today is, is heavy. It's hard. There's a lot of serious impl implications of how we should not only live today, but also how we should view eternity and and the truth is that God knows best. These ideas we just read and worked through, they're not my ideas. They're not people's ideas. These are, this is God's truth. You have to live in that truth. And the first thing we learned today is that life is just not easy. Okay, Life may be difficult in many different ways, but for every bit of pain and suffering you go through, God has divine purpose for that. And you can grow tremendously through those hardships. The second is that if you are a Christian, you can look to the future not with fear, but with hope. If you have that confidence, that insurance in Jesus, stick with that confidence and hold on to it. It's what, you get through, what gets you through the tough stuff now. But, but the last thing is if you are uncertain about your future and your eternity, now 
is the time to be certain. There's no better time than now, and there's nowhere else that assurance is found than in Jesus Christ. That was the testimony then from the apostles and these saints. That's the testimony now among the saints in the world. There's no other assurance than Jesus Christ. And I tell that to anyone here who does not know that because I love you. And I would hope that anyone would take that opportunity to avoid the hardships and the punishments of hell. That's something not just for you, but for you to share with others. If that's, if that's something you already know, then that should be really what drives you as a person, is to share that with many people, to give them the invitation that you once received. So I just want to throw that out now. If you're one here, if you're someone that's listening, both now or in the future, and you're not sure of your eternity, it really comes down to just a simple moment of admitting your guilt, that you do deserve all of that as a sinner before God, but then also believing that God paid the price for you, that the payment has been made in full, that you can be completely forgiven, and you can start a new life in Him. A life that starts now but continues into eternity and live with that confidence. So as we close in prayer, I want to give anyone who wants to take advantage of that opportunity a chance to start their life with confidence and assurance in Jesus. Let's pray together. This is a message that uh, certainly resonates for all of us in different ways for what I pray most or all of us here today, that this is something that we can live with personally, that we have this assurance in you, that we know our eternity with no fear or anxiety, but only hope in you. But God, I pray specifically for those who that is not true, that they've never made that step of trusting in you above all other things in this world, that they'd come to a place of being honest with themselves and honest before you, O holy God, that just confess their sin before you. They have sinned, that all people have sinned, including them. And that to know that this sin carries with it a great penalty, but to believe, Jesus, that you paid the cost on the cross, that this sacrifice was sufficient for the forgiveness and the removal of sins, that we could be made new and be made right in you and one day be made perfect in you. And if they're believing this now, that they, they call you Lord, the master of their life, that they would follow you in obedience, that they would trust in you for this new growth and this new life that, is, that has been made in them. God, I pray for us as a church that as we think about those harrowing facts that there are millions of people who die around the world every month without assurance in you, that that would compel us into action that's fueled by our love for you and for others. God, that they can have the same security we have, a precious gift that's given from you and received by us. So God, I pray for us that we be a church that is mobile and active in Maple Plain, in the West Metro, around the world. God, that we would truly love you and desire for others to love you the same. So God, I just pray that all of this is done for your glory, that you be glorified in us and we be glorified in you through your power and your might, that we can trust you in this and in all things. We pray this in your name, Jesus.
Amen.